It's time to breathe easier this allergy season with Breathe Right Nasal Strips. With instant nasal congestion relief for up to 12 hours, you can spend your time on your terms, not on your noses. Stuffy nose from outdoor allergens? No problem. We got you. Allergy season just turned into stripping season. Instant relief from nasal congestion anytime, anywhere. Need more convincing? Click the banner below and get a free sample. Breathe right. Get your strip on. Use as directed. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast. I'm Dr. Millicent Ravello, and I'm here today with my coffee-drinking, energy-deprived co-host, Dr. Jay Calvert. How are you? I am uh, I'm enjoying this coffee from our local coffee spot there over in Beverly Hills. Lock very, Lome. very tasty. We like it. Whenever we can get there in the afternoon, it's always a nice treat. It's good. We got We got. I, I have to tell you the truth that. Mm. I'm afraid of this podcast, and so I need some rocket fuel <laughs> to get it going. Because when you suggested it, I just went, mm-hmm. okay, let's do it. Yeah, that's how I feel when you suggest things like cleft nose repair. So, touche, we're Which on. Which is why I had champagne last week. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's always good to be drinking for those uh, those tough podcasts. But this one, I'm drinking some coffee so I can keep up. Yes. This is the Tuberous Breast Podcast. Oh, the crowd went, oh, except the crowd mostly has no idea. No, but the plastic surgery crowd all went, oh, okay, let's do it. So a tuberous breast, I think we've done this podcast before. Actually, I know we have because I actually had a patient today coming in for a tuberous breast consult and she referenced the podcast. So um, it's out there, but I think we need a revamp because it's been a couple of years. So what we are talking about here is what's called a tuberous breast, otherwise known as a constricted breast, also sometimes called a congenital breast deformity or asymmetry. So this is, as it sounds, it's a congenital, I hate to use the word deformity, but aberrancy in development of the breast. And there are multiple grades of the tuberous breast, but the classic finding in all of them to various degrees of severity is that the lower portion of the breast, we call that the lower pole, is underdeveloped. So the top part of the breast, the part that's sort of from the nipple and up, usually develops fairly normally, although there are instances where it it doesn't develop at all either. But usually that part develops fairly normally, but then the lower half, the part that sits below the nipple, instead of having a nice rounded shape at the bottom, it literally has these bands internally called constriction bands that narrow it and tighten it. And that distance from the nipple to the bottom of the breast is very short. And the fold of the breast, that's called the IMF, sits higher than it's supposed to because it also didn't develop property. And so that's sort of the genesis or the properties of a tuberous breast. And they and they don't look cute at all. That's the no. problem. Is and uh, so this is what brings uh, 
the women in is that they're saying like, I don't like the way this looks. It's usually a very herniated nipple areolar complex mm -hmm. as well, where the, the tissue behind the nipple areolar complex is sort of pushed through the skin envelope. Um, they can kind of look. It kind of gives them that cone yeah. shape or the tuberous shape that they're talking about um, is that, that cone shaped because, because what happens, so, so with the pathology here, um, and the reason it's called a constricted breast is it has those constriction bands that just mentioned. And when you are in the operating room and looking at them, you can see them and you can feel them. It's not a microscopic thing. They are literally these hard fibrous bands, usually on the bottom half of the breast that are constricting it from developing properly. And until they're released, the breast stays kind of cone-shaped at the bottom. Now, the nipple and areola are usually uninvolved by this process, and that areola skin is very stretchy just at baseline. So when the breast develops, it all goes into the areola because that's the part that can actually grow and stretch because the bottom part can't. So that's why they get that kind of cone shape because the areola is nice and stretchy, and it'll stretch out to the size it needs to be at the expense of the lower portion of the breast. Yeah, and this is a, it's a very, and there are different gradations, and mm -hmm. it's a, depending on the grade of the tuberous breast deformity, the difficulty and the algorithm for reconstruction yes. becomes more, more relevant. And it, it, it's, you know, it's something that you really have to get on board with somebody who's skilled and experienced with this uh, problem. Yeah, and the, the different grades aren't super pertinent to the podcast, but things to know is that at its most m mildest form, the patient may not even realize that there's a appearance difference in the breast. Sometimes even the plastic surgeon doesn't realize it until sort of afterwards. And it's yeah, they like, miss it. Yeah, they kind of miss that. And it can be very subtle and probably more common than realized where that lower pole just has more of a, a, a cone narrowed shape to it than the rest of the breast. And it doesn't have a nice smooth, round, half moon lower half. It's just a little more like angular. And that's not as big a deal. You just kind of have to know that it's there and address it and maybe do a few changes to your surgery. But then from there, it just gets, it can get more and more extreme. And one of the other findings with this is that the breast can be very asymmetric. So one side can develop normally, or it might have the tuberous breast deformity, but be a large breast. And the other side might not develop at all, or it might develop to be half the size of the other breast. And so those patients obviously know there's a difference, and they'll come in usually earlier, you know, in their teenage years, when their mom or their pediatrician recognizes that there's some kind of asymmetry. Some of these patients come in in like their 30s, and they're like, "Yeah, I just, you know, thought it was kind of weird, but I didn't really want to do anything about it." Yep. So it's not uncommon. So that should be another red flag to a plastic surgeon when they see breasts that are really different. It might not just be that one developed less than the other. It might be that they actually both have this shape. Uh, difference. And in terms of the way to correct it, I mean, there's a lot of different approaches and we can, you know, kind of start from the, the easiest obviously yeah. is kind of doing a breast augmentation or fat grafting. Those are sort of the things that I think of for the mild forms. You're going to do something to like when you do the breast augmentation, typically I think about doing a biplanar where you release the gland from the muscle. Uh, you might even just do a subglandular augmentation scoring of those bands, getting, you know, release of that breast tissue so that it does spread out over the implant 
and hopefully the implant can fill in the, the deficit tissue of the lower pole, lowering the inframammary fold can also be part of that plan depending on how long or short the dis- distance is from the nipple to the inframammary fold. But uh, they then get more severe where you start to talk about tissue expansion mm-hmm. and, other, and other methods. When, when do you go to tissue expansion with tuberous breast deformity? Um, I usually would only consider a tissue expander if one or both of the breasts are like completely not developed. Um, or if one breast is significantly smaller than the other, like maybe they're like a D or a double D on one cup and like an A on the other side. Um, and the skin is just tight. You know, in that case, I'm never going to be able to get that A cup side to look like the D cup. So I, I need to stretch the skin. But in general, I don't have to do that. I think I've, I, I very rarely go the tissue expander route. Um, Sometimes I'm thinking of one patient. I actually she had implants, and I had to go back to tissue expanders because she just kept failing the implants, and it, the mm. constriction just kept coming back, and her nipple was like all the way up by the clavicle, and I needed to recruit some skin, and and it was a whole deal, and put the tissue expanders in, and it was great. They, mm. they did the trick for her. But usually I can do the job with an implant, and for those milder cases that you mentioned. A lot of times that's what the patients come in asking for. They're like, oh, I just want a breast augmentation. They, they kind of recognize that their breasts aren't as cute as maybe they could be, and they think the breast augmentation might help. And so those are the patients you really have to educate. Like, hey, I know you came, just came in because you want to have larger, cuter, more perkier breasts, but like this is what's going on, and it's going to be a much bigger deal to address it. This is not just a classic breast augmentation. You're almost more in a breast reconstruction category. And they can all be done. They just have to know that they're in a little bit different category. And I do the same things that you do, that you talked about. Um, The main tenets being that if that fold is sitting high, if that distance from the nipple to the fold is very short, you have to lower the fold. If you don't, the implant's going to sit at that high fold, and the nipple is going to sit at the bottom of the implant, which is not cute. You want it nice in the middle. That's where the nipple should sit, right in the middle. And if that sh- that distance from the nipple to the fold is very short, it won't do that. No. So you got to lower the fold and sort of bring the nipple into a proper position relative to the implant. And that, that alone is very tricky. Anytime you're playing or adjusting with the fold, it likes to... It keeps its memory of where it should be because the fold is a very distinct structure and it goes all the way up to the skin. It wants to keep that crease. And so you have to obliterate it completely. And then once you've put it in a new position, you got to keep it there. Otherwise, it can continue to fall over time if you don't fasten it really securely with internal sutures and do post-operative bras and all of this stuff. So messing with the fold on its own is no small thing. No, and especially if you're going to try to put an expander into the space where the fold used to be. Yes. So that becomes a real issue because the the inframammary fold, just when you look at it in a uh, cross-section, like on a, on a microscope slide, if you do like a histologic sectioning of it, it's a very thickened structure. Mm-hmm. It's it's the fibers of the, of the uh, skin and the dermis and... The underlying soft tissue, they they Converge. kind of yeah, they come yeah. together and make a real structure, much like a, a nasolabial fold. It, this is a real structure on your face. S- similarly, the the inframammary fold is the same deal. Yeah. And so when you try to 
stretch it. it it's it's not up it's for it. It's not designed to do it. No. And so that that is one tricky area. The other tricky thing are those constriction bands we talked about. Those have to be released. And those constriction bands go all the way up to the skin as well. So you really have to do a full thickness of the breast release of those bands to allow the breast parenchyma, the breast tissue, to expand and become not so constricted. And so really the breast implant is kind of incidental to the whole surgery. The whole surgery is really reshaping and recreating the shape and the footprint of the breast. Then the implant just goes in to sort of splint it into that new position and provide the volume that they're missing, whatever size they want to be. And in terms of where and what plane you put the implant, um, the traditional teaching is that you put it directly under the breast. So implants can go under the muscle. This is the pectoralis muscle, or they can go over the muscle. That's called subglandular. For these, this is probably the only time I will do a subglandular implant. In general, I do not like subglandular implants. That's another podcast. But this is the one time that I will do a subglandular implant because for that reason, it splints the breast into that new position. And I find I have better post-operative control of that IMF. If I've put it under the muscle and I've released the old IMF, every time the muscle contracts, the IMF can do some weird, funky things with the muscle. So I've just found that by putting it over the muscle, even if the IMF retains some of its memory, it's not as dramatic as when the patients are moving and flexing their muscles. It doesn't change as much. Yeah, I mean, I'd like subglandular implants in general. If there's any kind of coverage, uh, I, I don't hesitate to go subglandular. I mean, people talk about capsular contracture rates and all those sort of things. I, I, I find that the benefits of being subglandular in even a routine AUG can certainly outweigh those those risks, which are hard to, to really measure as truly differential. Right. Um, but in tuberous breasts, you're right. Putting them subglandular way better. Trying to do a biplanar AUG or something like that, which is what I've seen done in the past, tends to be really, really tricky. And yeah. it seems like you're going to be back there again. You have, you have some problems. And then the other thing, so once you have your, um, you know, you've created the, the pocket, the shape, the position you want for this new breast, you've put in the implant to give you the volume and, and keep the breast open, then you have to talk about the nipple and the areola and what you're going to do with that. Because a lot of times they need some kind of, li- of lift. Um, and even if they don't, I usually still do some kind of areola reduction because I have found that if I don't, that areola spreads and widens and kind of takes over like the whole breast because mm. the breast is used to being kind of tight. And again, that areola is very stretchy. And then you put an implant in and you stretch it out even more and it can it can take over the breast. So I usually try and just cut around it and put some sutures in and, and reduce the size preemptively. Yeah, you can get some real, I mean, I've seen some gigantic areolas that really, like you said, they dominate the they skin of the breast. The breast. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's true. And that's not... That's not unusual in that situation. It really does stretch out a ton. And I think as it's been, I think because when it does herniate, it stretches and then it herniates and it stretches. And so you release it and then you release it. And then all of a sudden, like it's the whole breast. Mm. So I usually do something, especially because sometimes patients 
are, like we said, asymmetric. So one side does need a lift and the other side maybe doesn't. And so if I do a lift on one side and I cut all around the riola and I put the sutures in and I don't do anything to the opposite side, that side expands. And the one that I did a lift on doesn't. And now the areolas are asymmetric. Mm. So that's just what I started doing. 38 millimeters to 45 45 millimeters is is good. Once they get into the 10 centimeter range, you've kind of, yeah, it's it's, it's dominated the best. Yeah. And it, I mean... I have to tell you, though, I had a patient one time. She came in for a breast dog, and she just had gigantic areolas. And I was – they literally were, like, kind of dominating the breast. And I was like, do you want me to reduce those? She's like, are you crazy? I love those. Like, so you got to ask. That's like, true. You do. You have to ask. And, yeah. and she's like, oh, no, I love them. They're, they're, they're so pretty. And I was like – Then I love uh, them, then, too. Then, okay. <laughs> then we'll just do this differently. But, yeah, you you do have to – you know, everybody's got their own idea of what beauty is to the yeah. – you know, on their breasts. And and especially if their breasts have been tuberous their their whole life, then it, then it is sort of a it, – it's a changeover. It's like, okay, well, this is what I'm used to. You know, and that and that's kind of like – that happens in rhinoplasty and it happens in in body reduction mm-hmm. surgery where people are like, well, wait, I don't want to look too different. Yeah. Like, this is, this is my body. I'm used to this. I see that in breast reductions a lot. Yeah. I want it. I want it. I want it. Whoa. Wait, where are my breasts? Yeah, where did this big stomach come <laughs> and why from? Why do I have this big belly? <laughs> oh, I had a I had a patient at West Penn Hospital when I was a resident. She came back after her after her breast reduction, and she was madder than a hornet. She was fuming, angry at me. I go, oh, so what do you think of your breast reduction? She goes, Doctor Calvert, you did a great job on my breasts. I need I got a bone to pick with you though. Who put this belly on me? You put this belly on me when I was in surgery because I didn't have this belly before. <laughs> I was like, mm, well, but you know, you I just reduced the breasts. <laughs> I didn't stick them into your belly. And it's like, well, as soon as you uncover it. There it is. You can th- see it. Then they're like, oh, 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 did you, do you think this is funny? I mean, she was so angry with me. And I was like, I, it was there. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't put that there. <laughs> that was just hidden below the, below the, the deep to the, under yeah. the, under the. Sleeping bag of breast tissue that covered the entire abdomen. Now you have now your you belly. Now you see it. Sorry. That happens. And yeah, but just, yeah. So any change on the breast, patients can sometimes get weirded yes. out by for any reason. But the tuberous breast, you know, that's that's sort of the deal. That's sort of the, the basic of surgeries you do for it. I have had patients who really just didn't want implants. And implants are sort of the, the, the basis of how we treat the tuberous breast asymmetry mm-hmm. or deformity. But some patients just, for good reason, just don't really want to have a lifetime of implants. They just want to correct the asymmetry or the constriction deformity. And so I've had that talk about doing lifts and fat grafting. I don't love it. It has to be a very mild case because unless you surgically release those constriction bands, the skin itself is never going to expand. Nope. It's not just that one breast is smaller than the other. If that was the case, then yes, maybe fat grafting and a reduction on one side would, would do the trick. But when the problem is that the internal anatomy is so constricted, fat grafting is not going to camouflage that, and the skin won't stretch and it won't expand. You have to go in there and release it. And if you release it, then you have to put an implant in. Otherwise, it'll just scar back down to the place it was before. So fat grafting on its own, not a great option unless it's the mildest of mild cases and you're really just trying to correct a size you know, difference between the two. In your general 
sort of practice of treating tuberous breast deformity. Where does fat grafting fall on that scale? Is it in every case that you're doing some fat grafting? Is it in half the cases, 10% of the cases? I would, I mean, it's not my go-to for the first round of surgery. Um, I have had to do it for revision cases, and that's a very important point is that of all of the breast augmentation cases we do, this one's probably the highest chance of having to have a revision. And I tell that to every patient. Because again, you have to think of this as a, as a breast reconstruction almost. There is most likely going to be some kind of residual something that needs to be addressed. And it might be very mild and you don't care about it and you can live with it. But sometimes you need like a little tweak on something. Maybe that IMF didn't sit exactly where you wanted it to. Um, where I've used fat grafting is if that native IMF has retained its memory. A little fat grafting to camouflage that works really well. So I use it more if I need it for a small revision than I do in the primary surgery. Same. I feel the same way. It's like I, I'll use it in the primary surgery if it's useful, if it's useful yeah. around the <clears throat> around the cleavage or yeah. upper pole. I find some fat grafting there is really nice. But, uh, yeah, it's much more of a revision kind of move. Right. So that's the more or less the take-home of the tuberous breast. Um Important points are that this is not a basic breast augmentation. Um, it's going to be a little more involved. The risks of everything are a little bit higher. The chances of complications are certainly higher. And the chances of needing a revision are higher. And the revisions aren't usually big undertakings, but you may need a little tweak of something. And that's, you know, not uncommon. Well, I tell the patients to think about it as a staged reconstruction. I, I usually say you're going to need two operations. Now, if you don't need the second one, that's great. But I would think about it that you're going to need two. This way, at least we get it looking great in the first round of the operation. And if you need some sort of adjustment, fat grafting or whatever, that's part of the deal. Because yeah. it's not it's not like things went wrong or it didn't work out. It's just that it's a very complex yeah. situation with a lot of moving parts. You talked about Short, short distance from the nipple to the inframammary fold, elevated inframammary fold, no tissue, herniated nipple areolar complex, too much volume asymmetry. in the upper pole, asymmetry. Yeah. <laughs> so each one of those things need to be addressed, and each one has its own percentage need to be adjusted. Advised, yeah. Maybe it's 1% to 3%. Well, you take 1% to 3% six factorial times. It's like, you know, think about it. Yeah. it, it you, you can't get everything right every time because it doesn't balance out of the gates. And so I, I think if the patients understand that they're in a reconstructive situation, they're going to be much happier working towards the goal of having yes. really nice looking breasts. Right. Versus just like, hey, we're going to put some implants in you and you're going to love it and you're going to look great and high five. That's right. No. That's not how it works. <laughs> That's not how it works. But you still can make them look really pretty. Absolutely. And yeah. you do a great job with these. So I highly recommend Dr. Millicent <laughs> Ravello for tuberous breast deformity any day of the week. That's what I do. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, I think that's it for the tuberous breast deformity. Thank you, Dr. Jay Calver, for hanging in there with me. And this is the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast coming to you from the 90210. If you like what you heard on the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast and want to get in touch with either Dr. Ravello or myself, 
This is how to do it. You can reach me at the website, ravelloplasticsurgery.com. You can reach out to the office directly through the website with any questions or consult requests, or you can call the office directly at 310-954-1355. And you can reach me on Instagram at ravelloplasticsurgery. And to reach me, the phone number is 310-777-8800. My website is drcalvert.com, drcalvert.com. Instagram, Dr. J. Calvert. And of course, you may want to check out our YouTube channel for the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast, which is simply that, Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast. Hope to see you all in the office very soon. Uh